Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's November, and we had such a good time talking about this theme last November. And we feel like a lot of our listeners did too, so we're going to carry the theme over and we're here to talk about more gateway horror. Right, and we're going right back to the beginning of our list, actually. That's right. A very specific movie hit number one on our Top 10 Gateway Horror episode last year. Go check that out if you have not. But spoiler alerts, it was... The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz. Which is a 1939 American musical fantasy film produced by Metro Golden Mayer, aka MGM. It's an adaption of L. Frank Baum's 1900 children's fantasy novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. The film was primarily directed by Victor Fleming, who left at nearly the end of the production to take over the troubled Gone with the Wind. It stars Judy Garland, Frank Morgan, Ray Bolger. Bolger Bolger. on this podcast. Yeah, Bolger on this podcast. Right. Burt Lahr, Jack Haley, Billy Burke, and Margaret Hamilton. The music was composed by Harold Arlen and adapted by Herbert Stohart with lyrics by Edgar Yip Harburg. One of the most iconic films of all time, it is remembered for its use of Technicolor, fantasy storytelling, music, and characters. The film focuses on a young girl who, after being transported to a surreal landscape, kills the first woman she meets, then teams up with three complete strangers to kill again. And that didn't really sound right. That's not. Here, let me try. The film focuses on a Kansas horse girl who unlearns her homophobia with the help of three gay cosplayers as she goes on a killing spree to stop Ann Coulter from kidnapping her dog. Mm, no, that's not right either. I think I've got it. The film focuses on a young woman attempting to return to Kansas after traveling to an extraordinary world and befriending its magical citizens, all while being pursued by an evil witch. Yeah, that's what I just said. Oh, okay. Hmm. Okay, listeners. Pay no attention to the men behind the podcast, obviously. This is The Wizard of Oz. Many, many miles east of nowhere lies the amazing land of Oz, a magnificent empire created in the mind of a man who wrote a great book about it. Like wildfire in the wheat field, the fabulous tale of the Wizard of Oz spread from town to city to nation to the entire world. Although the Wizard of Oz has captivated the children of four generations and fired the imaginations of those youthful adults who have never grown old, although 10 million copies of the book have reached eager hands and eager hearts, no one has dared the towering task of giving life and reality to the land of Oz and its people. Every delightful character of L. Frank Baum's classic is now reborn. Every glorious adventure has been recaptured and painted with a rainbow. The celebration in Munchkinland, the flying monkeys, the rescue of Dorothy, the castle of the witch, the palace of Oz, and Dorothy's strange journey to the Emerald City to find the wonderful Wizard of Oz himself. We're off to see the wizard. 
the wonderful Wizard of Oz. We hear he is the Wizard of Wiz, if ever a Wiz there was. If ever a weather a Wiz there was, the Wizard of Oz is one. Because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. We're off to see the Wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Teenager Dorothy Gale, played by Judy Garland, lives on a farm in Kansas owned by her Uncle Henry and Aunt Em. When Dorothy's dog Toto bites the wealthy Almira Gulch, Miss Gulch obtains a sheriff's order authorizing her to seize the dog to be euthanized. Toto escapes and returns to Dorothy, who runs away to protect him. Professor Marvel, a charlatan fortune teller, tells Dorothy to go home because Aunt Em is heartbroken, and she returns just as a tornado approaches the farm. Unable to get into the locked storm shelter, Dorothy takes cover in the farmhouse and is knocked unconscious as the tornado lifts the house and drops it into an unknown land. Dorothy awakens and is greeted by a good witch named Glinda, played by Billy Burke, who explains she's in Munchkin land in the land of Oz and that the Munchkins are celebrating because the house landed on the Wicked Witch of the East. Her sister, the Wicked Witch of the West, played by Margaret Hamilton, appears in a burst of smoke and fire. Before she can seize her deceased sister's ruby slippers, Linda magically transports them onto Dorothy's feet and tells her to keep them on, as they're obviously very powerful. After Glinda tells the Wicked Witch that she has no power in Munchkin Land, she leaves in another burst of fiery smoke, but not before telling Dorothy, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Glinda directs Dorothy to follow the yellow brick road that goes to the Emerald City, the home of the Wizard of Oz, as he might know how to help her return home. Along the way, Dorothy meets the Scarecrow, played by Ray Bulger, who wants a brain, the Tin Man, played by Jack Haley, who wants a heart, and the Cowardly Lion, played by Bert Lahr, who wants courage. The group reaches the Emerald City despite the efforts of the Wicked Witch. Dorothy is initially denied an audience with the Wizard by his doorman. But the doorman relents after hearing that they were sent by Glinda, and the four are led into the wizard's chambers. The wizard appears as a giant ghostly head and tells them he will grant their wishes if they bring him the Wicked Witch's Broomstick. During their quest, Dorothy and Toto are captured by flying monkeys and taken to the Wicked Witch, but the ruby slippers protect her from instant death. The Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion free Dorothy, but are pursued by the witch and her guards. They're cornered by the witch, who sets fire to the scarecrow. But when Dorothy throws a bucket of water onto the scarecrow to put him out, she inadvertently splashes the witch, causing her to melt away. The witch's guards gratefully give Dorothy the witch's broomstick, and the four return to the wizard, only for him to tell them to return the next day. When Toto pulls back a curtain on the side of the room, the wizard is revealed to be an ordinary man operating machinery that projects the ghostly image of his face. The four travelers confront the wizard, played by Frank Morgan, who insists that he is a good man at heart, but confesses to being a humbug, whatever the fuck that is. <laughs> he then grants the wishes of Dorothy's three friends by giving them tokens that symbolize that they always had the qualities they had sought after all along. The wizard reveals that he, like Dorothy, is from Kansas, and accidentally arrived in Oz in a hot air balloon. 
He then offers to take Dorothy back to Kansas with him in his white van, I mean his <laughs> balloon. But after Toto jumps off and Dorothy goes after him, the balloon accidentally lifts off with just the wizard aboard. After contemplating whether it's actually worth having a dog at all at this point, <laughs> Glinda appears and tells Dorothy she always had the power to return to Kansas using the ruby slippers, but had to find that out for herself. Somehow, fine with this revelation, Dorothy shares a tearful farewell with her friends and heeds Glinda's instructions by tapping her heels three times and repeating the words, There's no place like home. Oh, there's my fucking Catherine Hepburn again. <laughs> Wrong movie. She's transported back to Kansas, where she awakens in her bed. She's attended to by her aunt, uncle, and the farmhands, and even Professor Marvel stops by as Dorothy describes Oz, telling the farmhands and the professor that they were there too. But none of that matters now, as Dorothy gratefully exclaims, There's no place like home. Is that how she said it? Something like that. You sound a little Judy-ish, I guess. No way, Sam. After she smokes a pack a day, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no place like home. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz was released on August 25th, 1939. According to MGM Records, during the film's initial release, it earned uh, two, a little over $2 million in the United States and uh, $969,000 in other countries throughout the world for a total earnings of a little more than $3 million. However, its high production costs, plus the cost of marketing, distribution, and other services, resulted in a loss for the studio. It did not show what MGM considered a profit until a 1949 re-release, earned an additional $1.5 million, which is about $15 million in today's money. Maybe even more. MGM sold CBS the rights to televise the film for $225,000, or equivalent to $1.75 million in 2021, per broadcast. Per broadcast. It was first shown on television on November 3rd, 1956. It's the same year The Ten Commandments came out, I think. Mm. As the last installment of the Ford Star Jubilee. It was a rating success with a Nielsen rating of 33.9 and audience share of 53%. Jesus. After an even more popular broadcast in 1959, the film became an annual television tradition. Right, so this came out, it was a big hit. It's not per popular belief and what we made it sound like was that it was a bomb and it was not a bomb, it just wasn't that successful. Correct. Right, and then of course, people waited 10 years to see that again. And then after that, about every year, it was a big event. And television is a good way to reach people. Like, I remember watching this on TV as a kid every year. Oh, yeah. Until they stopped doing it. But uh, we also recorded that. So, uh, technically, this is the first time that I've seen The Wizard of Oz not on a VHS from recorded television broadcast. Wow, really? Yeah. Like, while watching this, I could pick out exactly where the commercial breaks were when I was a kid. I was like, commercial break. Commercial Your family break. never had like never had bought a VHS. Well, I guess they didn't need to if they copied it. Yeah, they just they copied it off TV, and I watched mm-hmm. the shit out of it. Yeah, I had like Adam Family Values and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Lonesome Dove. I don't fucking know. Mad 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 World. I don't know. Some of those we had. Some of them we had recorded, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I definitely had. I believe The Wizard of Oz uh, without commercials, as far as I know. I did not. I fast forwarded them. I probably watched them for a while when I was kid. Probably because I was obsessed. I think it, maybe originally it was recorded. 
for one of those annual broadcasts, but I was obsessed with Wizard of Oz when I was a child. And I was too. I mean, so we could probably talk about some stories, like, especially when we get into the horror, the, the horror gateway stuff in this, because like, I have a really interesting, not interesting, I have an anecdote. Okay. Okay. Uh, after a slew of re-releases on home media versions, Wizard of Oz holds a worldwide gross of $29.7 million, or about $500 million, accounting for inflation over the years. you think it'd be more of that, right? When we yeah. Were, we were living in a world where movies are making over a billion dollars now. <clears throat> of course, those are few and far between, but we're getting – I feel like we're getting more and more of the, like, the biggest grosser of all time type movies. Oh, every like, year. It's Avatar like just did it. You know, James Cameron's always making a movie that's doing it every 10 years or so. Well, when you have a movie that's pr- like – predominantly shown on television that people have access to, yeah. you know, like it's just not going to make a lot of money in the theater. I think the, like the re-releases um, count towards that, but yeah. yeah, streaming and, and, you know, if you account for all that stuff, but yeah, like I would go million, see this movie on the that's half screen. a billion dollars. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's a very popular and successful film yeah. for sure. The Wizard of Oz holds a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and a certified friche. The audience score sits at 89%, and the site's consensus reads, quote, an absolute masterpiece whose groundbreaking visuals and deft storytelling are still every bit as resonating. The Wizard of Oz is a must-see film for young and old. Here, here. The Wizard of Oz received widespread acclaim upon its release. Writing for the New York Times, Frank Nugent considered the film a delightful piece of wonder-working, which had the youngster's eyes shining and brought a quietly amused gleam to the wiser ones of the oldsters. Not since Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves has anything quite so fantastic succeeded half so well. I feel like that should have been read in kind of a Scram Betty accent. No, Scram, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Writing in Variety, John C. Flynn predicted that the film was likely to perform some record-breaking feats of box office magic, noting, Some of the scenic passages are so beautiful in design and composition as to stir audiences by the sheer unfoldment. He also called Garland an appealing figure. <laughs> and the musical numbers gay and bright. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> Did you used to live back then? Are you reincarnated? I might are you John C. Flynn? <laughs> Roger Ebert chose it as one no, of his. I'm just gay and bright. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just gay and bright. I'm homosexual and tame. I don't know. Scram, the baby. Scram. Scram, does it? Roger Ebert chose it as one of his great films, writing that The Wizard of Oz has a wonderful surface of comedy and music, special effects, and excitement. But we still watch it six decades later because its underlying story penetrates straight to the deepest insecurities of childhood, stares them, then reassures them. Six decades later would have been 1999. <laughs> well, Roger Ebert's dead now, so it's not. How old is this movie now? 1939. Yeah, so we're getting pretty close to the, the 100th, right? Yeah. We're going to live to see the 100th. Oh my, can you imagine what that's going to be like? We're going to be in walkers or something, I don't know. I'll be in my 50s. In 2039, you'll be barely in your 50s. Oh, shut up. I don't want to talk about getting old. Every, every episode, you realize you make me feel old. I think you're doing it on purpose at this point. Anyway, <laughs> I love that Roger Ebert has the great films, capitalized G, capitalized F, great films. Mm-hmm. Like he's well, he so self-important. Anyway. Was. He's dead now. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, like Robert Siskel, I didn't like. Sorry. <laughs> I know. Roger Ebert's. Rip. Rip, cool. rip them both. Um, it does have, I guess, you know, you could say Wizard of Oz has some accolades, maybe some legacy. Maybe. Just a couple, maybe. perhaps. At the Cannes Film Festival, it was nominated for the Palme d'Or. 
I wonder what won. Oh, probably, you know, the thing that won everything that year. Yeah, maybe. Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Special Effects, Best Art Direction, Best Picture, but it lost to, drumroll please, Gone with the Wind. Uh, but it won for Best Song, uh, Over the Rainbow, and Best Score. Yes, that, that's a tough year with Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And of course, they share the same, some of the same directors. Because mm-hmm. sure both do. of those films have multiple directors. Mm-hmm. Well, because everyone was trying to get a little too big for their britches. Speaking of big for their britches, the AFI clearly has a raging boner for this movie. It fucking does. Like, I read this list and I was just like, my God. So, here we go, y'all. Uh, for the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, the very first thing they ever did, it was number six on the list. It was also number 43 on the 100 Thrills. <clears throat> the Wicked Witch of the West was the number four villain on 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains. And it was number one for 100 Songs for Over the Rainbow and uh, number 82 for Ding Dong, Which is Dead. Uh, so when AFI did its 100 Years, 100 movie quotes, it had several. One of them being Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, which was number four. And number 23, There's No Place Like Home. And number 99, I'll Get You, My Pretty, and Your Little Dog, Too. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And uh, AFI's Greatest Movie Musicals, it was number three. For 100 Cheers, it was number 26. I wonder what the fuck is 100 Cheers? I don't understand. 100 Years, 100 Cheers? Who knows? Uh, 100 Years, 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition, it was number 10. Oh, so it went down some. And for the AFI's 10, top 10, it was the number one fantasy film. 10 top 10? So they had different genres. <laughs> okay, so 10 different genres. 10 genres. Okay. Number one fantasy film, that makes sense. The Wiz, a musical version of the film, told in the context of African-American culture, opened on Broadway in 1975. It would go on to win seven Tonys and become a popular film starring Diana Ross and Michael Jackson. Wicked, a musical focusing on the early years of the Wicked Witch of the West, opened in 2003 and remains one of the most popular musicals today. In 1985, Disney released Return to Oz based on the later bomb novels in the series. The film had a darker tone than the original and fared poorly with critics, but now has become a cult classic. We might be talking about that soon. Mayhaps be. Hmm. Mm. The Wizard of Oz was and remains a phenomenon influencing culture throughout the years. In 1989, it was selected by the Library of Congress as one of the first 25 films for preservation in the United States National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. It is also one of the few films on UNESCO's Memory of the World Register. That's impressive. And what has got like the 10th or 20th film that we've covered that's been in the Library of Congress? Mm-hmm. We pick, we pick all the good ones. We need to do a top 10 Library of Congress. <laughs> For real, though. Of the movies that we've covered? Yeah, just the ones that are in there. I don't yeah. know. Maybe we're at 10 or more. I don't know. Seems I like mean, it. it is. I mean, I'm sure we are. It is safe to say that The Wizard of Oz is like something that just about every person in the world. Uh, that might be too much. At least like. Every person in like America, Europe, or maybe even the world, I don't know, have seen this movie. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's it's just inescapable and everywhere. If you're gonna say child. that about any film that exists ever on this world, yeah. It would be Wizard of Oz. Probably. Yes. Certainly out of the movies that we have covered on this podcast, it is by far the most popular and most seen. Yes. Yeah. So uh we're gonna do things a little bit differently for this episode because uh, I feel like the vast majority of you kind of know the gist 
when it comes to this movie and even a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. We're going to cover some of the major things just in case some of you don't know or need remembering what some of those fun facts are. And we'll get to those in our traditional fun facts section. But we're not going to do a big thing on like cast and the production Mm -hmm. of this. Right. So the main uh, the main things I want to talk about, especially as we prepare for our conversation next week with Return to Oz is on Baum himself, right, for the Wizard of Oz series. And, of course, uh, the legacy of gateway horror that this has and why it is such. That's right. I mean, so, like, this is one of the first films that I saw as a child that really got me interested in some, like, darker materials. It's one of the first movies that, like, frightened me as a kid, too. And so For I sure. Like, yeah. I think part of that is that... You know, our parents grew up with this and our parents' parents grew up with this. And so everyone just kind of accepts it as a must-see regardless of what its content is. Mm -hmm. And so then no one's paying attention to when we're seeing this. I think I might have seen this the first time when I was two or three years old. Yeah, I was definitely around that age, right? But I loved it and latched onto this movie. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it scared the shit out of me. It certainly did. I mean, like, I was scared, but I watched it a lot. And so, like, my parents... Learned early on that I could handle like some more mature type things, right? The Wizard of Oz is not necessarily a mature movie. Yeah. But I remember they, we went to go visit my dad's brother when I was little, maybe like three or four years old. And I was obsessed with the Wizard of Oz and a local department store was having like people dress up like Dorothy and the gang and the Wicked Witch was going to be there. And so we got to this very crowded department store. I was very excited. But the minute, that that woman in the witch costume came even close to me. I like freaked the fuck out. Like I vividly remember like not being able to handle it. And just like, we had to leave. Like we waited there all day long for this. And I was like, no, we had to go. I would not stop like the tantrum of fear that was coming out. Wow. So I was maybe a little older, maybe five years old. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to a pumpkin patch and they were going to have people in costume. And I was just obsessed with a wicked witch. And I wanted, so you might've been a little younger, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted the Wicked Witch to be there and I like sought her out and she was there and, you know, she had green skin and all this stuff. And I was like, yes, she's there. Right. And I had no idea the separation of, you know, church and state or in this case, movie and reality. <laughs> and uh, so I went up to her and she was really nice. And I was really fucking disappointed that she Aww. was nice. <laughs> I wanted her to threaten to kill me. I feel like maybe this was the start of some of my clown issues too, mm. you know, like my, my parents expected me to be like overcome with joy and instead I was traumatized like for the rest of my life. But mm. nonetheless, like even after that, I continued to watch this movie. However, I will say as we get into this discussion, I don't think that I've seen this movie since I was maybe like 10. Wow. See, I, I tried to see it about 15 years ago and I just couldn't do it. Um, before that, it had been probably another 15 years. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so at, at a point, I just stopped watching The Wizard of Oz. But. Yeah. I mean, we grew we grew out of it, you yeah. know. And, and I don't we, have any kids. So, I mean, like. Exactly. There's no reason for me to show it. And other movies keep coming out, you know. And so, we, we go back to our favorites or nostalgia boners that we have. But this is, like, beyond a nostalgia boner, right? Yeah. This is, like, part of our DNA, you know. It is. And so, it's interesting to go back and see it again as an adult. I definitely had different takeaways this time, for sure. I had some nostalgia to it, but I also kind of appreciated it for other things now, too. I did. I mean, I I noticed a lot more, too. I feel like watching this movie as an adult and as someone who has become, like, a bigger fan of of film in general, like, 
I was taking, I, I was had different takeaways. Like I was marveling at some of like the set design and costumes and things like that, that I probably wouldn't have when I was like 10 years old watching this movie for what would have been the last time. Yeah. And now like as a, a fan of, of just the film itself, I was just like, it's kind of a Marvel, you know, it is. And it's a technical Marvel for sure. Mm-hmm. And everything just kind of came together, you know, back, back then they would fire directors and, and fire everybody and reshoot everything and everything until it was that way. In a well, way, I mean, know? cause Hollywood was a, f- fucking factory oh yeah back then i mean like it had a factory of like all the millions of people who worked at them but they worked those people to death well shirley temple was supposed to be there but they had the contract with the 16 year old so they did they did yeah. you know uh the more experienced you know julie Gar- judy garland instead mm-hmm. of an actual child and they like rewrote it because it was cheaper you know yeah i mean they did and they certainly worked judy garland to death that poor woman yeah but that's not really what i want to talk about again like i don't want to get into all like the drama of this film in particular, because I really want to talk about how it ties into gateway horror. And there was a lot more horror in this than I had remembered. Uh, Yes. And I would agree. And I think you're right. I mean, we're a horror podcast at the end of the day, you know? And so like focusing on that is why we're here. Oh, and I'm sure it's going to squeak out every once in a while, all the little anecdotes we know about Judy Carlin, because you know, fucking flamers. Because we're we're film flamers. (laughs) Let me open up a beer for this. So one of the first things I want to talk about really is, is, and one of the main things is L. Frank Baum himself, who created these stories, you know, and, and his first book of this series being The Wonderful Wizard of Oz from 1900. Have you read it? Yeah. So I read a couple of these back in elementary school and I just saw them and I didn't realize it was a series. And I was like, you know, Ozma of Oz. And I saw like some, you know, the patchwork girl of Oz and some of these other stories. And I, and I read quite a few of them, I believe, when I was in elementary school was just on the rack. I feel like I read this when I was a teenager just because I used to like devour like classic literature. Right. But I, I can't remember if that's the case or not. I'm sure that I have at least read this particular book. I remember them being back then. I wouldn't have said I was into horror. Those was a pre like R.L. Stein and things like that. Goosebumps yeah. and all that for me. And it was really getting into a place that was uncomfortable for me. And not necessarily because it's overt horror, but because of things that were just kind of in between the lines and just part of the fabric of that universe. Mm -hmm. So uh, L. Frank Baum was born in 1856 and he died in 1919. So he lived in a very interesting time in U.S. history. For sure. And his stories and like the illustrations and all of that kind of remind me of Lewis Carroll a little bit, right? Obviously there's an analogy of Dorothy going to Oz and Alice going to Wonderland, right? Right. It's very, very kind of similar in that way. And there's kind of similar imaginings, um, you know, about those two characters as well and and darker imaginings. And uh, I feel like you can kind of see the, you know, the influences here. Um, I don't know that he was, explicitly or directly influenced by Lewis Carroll, but Lewis Carroll would have been 1832 to 1898. So like the generation before, like his father's, like um, L. Frank Baum's father's era. And uh, speaking of gateway horror, (laughs) you need to check out the uh, 1933 Alice in Wonderland. I showed uh, you some clips. Yeah, based on the clips that you showed me, that seems like fucking nightmare fuel. And pure, not even not even joking. Pure nightmare fuel. I watched yeah. clips from 1933 Alice in Wonderland. I would have to be in the most altered state to watch that, and, and I'd probably be like terrified. No, no. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to watch it in an altered state. I would just like go and like throw myself down a set of stairs or something. I mean, it seems 
just truly fucking that Humpty Dumpty will haunt my dreams forever. Yeah, I can I can see it in my head right now, and I kind of wish you hadn't shown me that. I'm gonna have to sleep <laughs> at some point tonight, so I don't know. And that was for kids, but anyway, like so, Alfred Brown said he was influenced by Brothers Grimm and Hans and Christian Andersen, uh, and he wanted to remake those types of stories, but in an American vein update them and then omit like the stereotypical characters like dwarves and genies and then remove the obvious and hardline associations of violence and moral teachings like uh book book of virtues type of stories where it's like x happens and you know you must do y or x happens again you know what i mean so this is also kind of reminiscent of tolkien for me who was born in the generation after after him right tolkien was born in 1892 and died in 1973 and he wanted to give England its own mythology and national stories in the form of, of course, what we know now as The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion. Because he felt like all of that was kind of taken away when you know England was kind of taken over um, in its history. And basically all they had was fucking Shakespeare and Beowulf. And he did not like Beowulf as much. Uh, and he certainly didn't like Shakespeare as much. And he wanted to give them a mythology similar to like uh, the Greeks had the Greek gods and all those stories and everything else, right? Uh, That's a little bit of a segue, but it just keeps me thinking about this line of storytellers, especially for children, because you can trace this dark children's storytelling with an evolution from Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen to Lewis Carroll to L. Frank Baum to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, right? And so I think it's really, really interesting to see how those things kind of got really out there and dark and wacky and then kind of started like crystallizing themselves into more almost like Eurocentric mythology, you know, versus the really out there stuff of Lewis Carroll and Frank L. Frank Baum that came out of like left field of the the world of Hans Christian Andersen. Well, and L. Frank Baum is the only American in that list that you just said too, right? So that's true. And like, I feel like in that way he succeeded because a lot of readers and critics say that he created one of the first and still kind of rare surrealist stories and worlds that feels distinctly American. It really as, does. As compared to American author George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, which is distinctly Eurocentric. Mm-hmm. While like Neil Gaiman's American God still feels well Eurocentric because, you know, he's a Euro fucking peon. Yeah, he is. Which so, is fine. You know, and Neil Gaiman, Gaiman does a better job than George R. R. Martin does at times with American feeling stories and that regard but really still l frank baum is one of the one of the few i feel like that really does feel like early americana we just talked about how this movie is appreciated and sort of like loved worldwide and the novel maybe too but i feel like even the movie feels very very american everything takes place in like kansas or kansas is referred to like all over the place in this movie and you cannot get more middle america than kansas Mm -hmm. right and i know that we talked about this book in american history or ap american history when i was in high school like we talked about some maybe some possible allegorical meanings and i'm sure that we'll get into that but he really did create this sort of like American fantasy saga in ways that nobody else has kind of done. Maybe like since then. Yeah, you could start segueing into the things like Stan Lee's World Outside Your Window with Marvel Comics and things like that. But even then, that is not surrealist fantasy. Well, I mean, maybe like some of Stephen King's work, if you look at like the Dark Tower. Books, well, when people actually like started segueing into horror as a genre versus yeah. just surrealist fantasy, which was basically just a wolf in sheep's clothing for horror, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Then you get into the Arl Steins and the Christopher Pikes and, you know, the people like that. Or even if you go earlier in the late 1800s or early 1900s and start thinking about the Penny Dreadfuls. That's true. But even then, I mean, those were mostly European. Yeah. So 
another thing that he wanted to admit, you know, so he's already admitted like the hard line, obvious like morality tale uh, in here, but he also kind of uh, intentionally omitted an emphasis on romance that you might see in some of those Disney stories that they're plucking from Hans Christian Andersen, et cetera, right? So he considered romantic love to be uninteresting to young children, as well as, you know, largely incomprehensible to himself. <laughs> well, I mean, I think most kids do understand it. But while, I mean, I can't, if I read this book, I don't remember, but I feel like the the movie at least has a really hard morality tale in it. You know, like don't want to leave the things that, you are familiar with the hardest thing to do when you're reading wizard of oz in this series is to separate it from your nostalgia boner of the movie of the movie because there's a lot of things in the movie that just aren't in the book like the green-skinned witch you know Mm -hmm. the fact that the wicked witch of the east and the west were sisters they're not sisters you know um uh, just like the bright cotton candy atmosphere that just does not exist in the books you know and so it's like you have to like rip that off like a a freaking band-aid or something if you're going to enjoy those books at all so perhaps return to oz which we'll be talking about next week right the the 1985 disney film is a little bit more oh, similar yeah. to his mm, work yeah yes okay. yeah so uh now his first oz books even though he has already said that he wants to get rid of some of that violence as, as part of the morality tale um in his first few books especially wizard of oz you know there was a fair amount of violence but it did decrease as the series progressed in the Emerald City of Oz, Ozma, uh, which is a princess of Oz, uh, objects to the use of violence, even to the use of violence against the gnomes who threaten Oz with invasion. You'll remember that from Return mm-hmm. to Oz later on. His introduction is often cited by his introduction. I mean, his introduction as a writer uh, and this universe is often cited as the beginning of sanitation of children's stories. Wow. Although he didn't do a great deal more than, you know, eliminate harsh moral lessons. But that's enough. I mean, because those moral lessons are coded and and the previous works. Well, you go back to these old fairy tales and they're pretty violent. They're very violent. getting fucking cooked alive. And yes. like there's child death all over the place. And, People are being you know, maimed. Pocket full of goddamn posies and all that I, shit, you know? I know. <laughs> so, I mean, but like th- there's still a moral lesson at the end of that. You know what I mean? But like in America has its own moral lessons too. If you think you look at things like urban legends and stuff like that, that just permeate our culture. Yeah. But like... It's kind of fascinating to think that because when you look at like children's stories now, you're right. Like things have been washed clean in America, at least. Right. Like there's nothing remotely frightening or something that people could be offended by in most children's books these days. Maybe with the exception of like Roald Dahl. But again, he wasn't an American. Yeah. So with that sanitization that came with and it like and, and it kind of crystallized the further on and the older he got right until his death yeah um and so like he started like I said in 1900 with the wonderful Wizard of Oz going on with the marvelous Land of Oz queer visitors from the marvelous Land of Oz oh queer which was a comic strip depicting 27 stories the Woggle Buggle Book <laughs> from 1905 okay Ozma of Oz Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz the Road to Oz the Emerald City of Oz now we're at 1910. The Patchwork Girl of Oz, Little Wizard Stories of Oz, TikTok of Oz, you'll remember that name from Return of Oz, uh, yeah. The Scarecrow of Oz, uh, Rinkatink, or Rinkit, yeah, Rinkatink of Oz, The Lost Princess of Oz, The Ten Woodsmen of Oz, The Magic of Oz, we're getting to 1919, and that's posthumously published. And now the final book that was posthumously published is Glinda of Oz in 1920. So he gave all these characters like their own little standalone books? So these are like 14 plus books in different comic strips and things like that. But most of these are our books or a collection of short stories, you know, between 1900 and 1920. 
And so at the at the beginning of this movie of Wizard of Oz, you see that title card that says like, you know, Elbaum's work has been sparking imagination in children's hearts and minds for 40 years. Yeah. It was hard for me to think this is 1939. They're talking about something. These stories as old as 40 years before this movie was made. It's crazy. That is crazy to think. My God. Yeah. And so people have, were picking apart these stories even before this movie was ever made long before this movie was ever made. For sure. I mean, it was a popular book. And so there was a lot of weird, like political meanings that people have ascribed over the years that you could take with like a little, you know, grain of salt, maybe a bucket of salt. I don't know. Like the scarecrow. As a representation of American farmers and their troubles in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. The Tin Man might represent the American steel industry's failures to combat increased international competition at the time. The Cowardly Lion might be a metaphor for the American military's performance in the Spanish-American War. <laughs> uh, the Wizard might represent the false promise of technology and industrialization. This is a very key time of him being alive for the you know industrialization. Uh, the witches, both good and bad, are in support of women's suffrage. Yeah. Right. And then the winged monkeys, and this is the worst, and later the gnomes could easily represent Native Americans. And Baum's weird earlier writings justifying a Native American genocide as the only truly viable way to protect the expansion of settlers in the American frontier after the death of the last noble Indian, or so he says, Sitting Bull, which he was alive to witness. Oh, my good Lord. Yeah. Well, that's beyond problematic. Well, if you think about it, right? Like, so if you think about the the gnomes in Return to Oz, right? Theoretically, their story is they they owned all of that. They owned Oz. They owned all of the stuff, right? And then it was taken from them. Mm-hmm. And then they're coming to f- back to to fight to get it back, and they're taking over. And so it's basically the story of we don't care. We're going to subjugate you again and push you to the side. It's true. Right? And so it's kind of similar to some of his earlier uh, writings that he did as part of newspaper. Right? So when Sitting Bull died, he said that was the last noble. You know, like, it does not do a service to the the memory of the noble Native American to keep them alive and in danger of all the, the, the settlers trying to get across the American frontier at this point, of which... Manifest Destiny was still kind of a thing we were working on. For sure. I mean, and I know that, like, I mean, we're talking about, like, Americana and things like that and how, like, Middle America was formed and 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 whatnot. But, my God, the idea of Manifest Destiny kind of at this point is incredibly problematic, right? Like, yeah. literally stealing land oh, yeah. from people, you know? Justifying it by saying, well, we're a country now. That was kind of his, it was kind of a resigned, he's like, all the good ones are gone. The only ones that are left are trash. And of course, if you believe in the concept of trash humans, then, you know, you subscribe to, you know, Fox News and all that bullshit, you know. And so it seemed like he was kind of caught up in that early up in his political career. And that kind of went away later on. And his friends, people who knew him say, you know, what you're seeing in those articles is like a snapshot of the time, which was a highly contentious, you know, Sitting Bull had been assassinated, Mm -hmm. had died, you know, and he was like, you know, everyone, every. Everywhere else is the stories of them either being drunk in the street or killing us as we expand. And it's like, we've got to just systematize the genocide so that we can move on with our lives and move on as a country. And that was just like writings of the frustrated. I don't want to make excuses for him. That was problematic and uh, racist and horrible. And later on, though, his stories get more and more and more explicitly anti-violent. And so it's like he learned from his own lesson and and wrote these stories almost as a form of like therapy. 
Well, I mean, if you want to talk about Manifest Destiny as something, I mean, it's, it's certainly imperialist, right? Mm-hmm. And if we're a nation that was sort of like gained its independence from an imperialist nation that owned us at some point, you know, you would think that the very basis of America is to be welcoming and to be some sort of melting pot, yeah. right? And we're getting way, way into and this for, for those, stuff. We but, have a lot of listeners on here that may not know what Manifest Destiny is, right? We have some, yeah. some listeners from overseas and some younger listeners maybe. And of course, Manifest Destiny is the belief, the philosophy uh, earlier in America that we needed to go from, you know, New York to L.A. essentially, right? Coast mm-hmm. to coast, continental United States was the dream. That's right. And they were justifying everything to do it, Louisiana Purchase, et cetera. Trail of Tears, et cetera. I mean, literally having wars with other nations to take the land that they owned on the continent. But all of this is not to really like shine a light on how problematic or unproblematic he was at certain times in his life. Obviously, he was earlier and then less so later. Either way, we get these interesting and wonderful stories out of it and a huge legacy that's touched horror as a genre. Uh, in a huge way, more than I ever thought possible. Well, that's true. I and mean, we've said on this podcast before that like sometimes fantasy work, genre work in general, is an easy way to like have hidden allegorical meanings and things. It's yeah. just an easy way to sort of like take something that's happening in the world and, you know, make it digestible for people. And I think that this is true. Also, like when it comes to to pieces of fiction, there's no wrong answer, you know? So if people can justify the scarecrow being a representation of American farmers and things like that, as long as you can make that argument, sure. Like, it's all subjective. Yeah. And so, like, again, this is all criticized, you know, uh, critics kind of ascribing meaning when Baum never, never did. Correct. Right. And so you could say the same thing of Tolkien saying, oh, Gandalf is Jesus. And, you know, and mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings is World War II. It's like, fuck you, no. Yeah. You know, and um, Tolkien explicitly said no. You know, and so it's like we get to these things and sometimes, you know, a bird is just a fucking bird, you know, you know, symbolism is, is symbolism. But obviously there's some some connections here. And what I'm trying to do is really kind of paint the picture of what he saw America as an experience as America. Right. He published Wizard of Oz 20 years before like electricity was super widespread in New York City. You know, he lived in South Dakota, you know, during the droughts and saw essentially uh, the Badlands you know, and lived there when there was no real civilization, you know? And so he, he saw the dangers and witnessed a lot of the interesting things that were going out in the frontier mm-hmm. and had a very interesting point of view of what society was both in, you know, metropolitan existence as well as on the bleeding edge of the frontiers. And so it's kind of an interesting canvas to start painting these Americana stories of surrealist fantasy in the line of, uh, you know, those old fairy tales and Lewis Carroll. And that's true. I mean, he's creating an American fairy tale. I mean, because like if you say that the vast majority of people, like the larger populations were in the larger cities on like the East Coast and whatnot. And then like everything they heard about life further west was already kind of like a fantasy. Right. And so he was just taking things that people already believed and was just making it a bit more fantastic. Right. But again, like bringing it back to the legacy of horror, this is not like King Arthur-sized, you know, Eurocentric fantasy. This is like the surrealist, absurdist stuff where the horror is not black and white Star Wars, you know, Freddy and and Heather Longenkamp. You yeah. know what I mean? There's not really a huge contrast there. It exists, but the horror is more woven in to the very DNA of these stories. Uh, and I've got a bunch of uh, of examples later on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Oz is, is an upsetting place. It's basically a nightmare landscape. 
access through traumatic events in our real world, tornado or otherwise, even uh, what could be considered real and normal is shifted into the bizarre and strange, much like, you know, Wonderland. Exactly. Like a funhouse mirror. So despite being an excellent film, you know, and well worthy of its iconic status, the Wizard of Oz film isn't the best or most accurate depiction of the Land of Oz or its characters. It doesn't quite capture the subtle horror of the series. So the world that Mom betrays is an absolute fever-induced surreal nightmare that you would remember for the rest of your life and hope to never experience again. (laughs) (laughs) And instead, in the movie, we're sort of given this, like, really glossy, fun-looking environment. Yeah, we're given Candy Crush. Exactly. I mean, there's there's kind of horror at every turn in the movie. There but, is. Um, but it's shocking how sanitized it is exactly. in some ways, right? Yeah. Uh, illustrators W.W. W. Denslow and John R. Neal came up with some of the most horrifying child book illustrations of the day, uh, even compared to the horrific earlier like wood carving works for Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, if you remember those. I do, and they are horrific. Yeah. And this isn't limited to Baum's works, obviously. I mean, take a look at the tonal difference between pre-1939 Alice in Wonderland films compared to the after uh, to after Wizard of Oz was released in theaters. The big budget 19 1933, just like we mentioned, Alice in Wonderland film is particular peak nightmare fuel. Wizard of Oz is one of, if not the first major Hollywood attempt to sanitize and then strip away most horror and darkness from children's stories to make them as accessible to all ages as possible and replace that darkness and horror with early Hollywood spectacle. The Wizard of Oz is glaringly colorful and optimistic film in comparison to much of the content in the books. And I think we can. And even the books were 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 told that they were the beginning of sanitization of stories. But this one's even more so for film. A filter of a filter, you know what I mean? Exactly. But I mean, like the American dollar is such a thing, right? This needs to be a sure bet, is what it is. Exactly. This needs to appeal. This needs to everybody. Yeah, to everyone. Right. But still, at least it kind of retains. It's not even kind of, it does retain some horror, but not near as much, I would imagine. Just from The Wizard of Oz, one example is the witch sending 40 wolves after Dorothy. The Ten Woodsman kills every single one of them with his axe, back to back, in her defense, and even goes so far as describing uh, him decapitating the wolf leader's head from his body, effectively, obviously killing him, building up a pile of bodies. <laughs> and obviously covered in wolf blood. Yes. And uh, one of the most disturbing characters from the books is the quote-unquote bumpy man. He was drawn and described as being covered in giant tumors, slowly becoming a mass of cancer sores. But he was always kind and jovial, despite his condition and obvious pain. Oh my god! And this was drawn. As another example, there's a group called the Scootlers, uh, tall, thin men, who could take off their heads and use them as weapons, whose favorite meal is a soup made of the human remains of travelers who crossed their territory. Okay. This is all illustrated. The list goes on. I could go on. Like, it's crazy. Like, there's good... What I'm trying to say is, like, the Bumpy Man, he's actually a good guy. He's a good character. But the horror is built into the DNA of him. It's like every new character you meet, you almost dread to do so as you're reading these novels because there's some sort of trauma center to each one of these characters that's unique and almost, like, Cenobite-ish. That's true. I mean, oh, my God. Now that you would mention this... Like one gets more disturbing after the other. I'd almost say Hellraiser, the original movie by Clive Barker, is a little bit more in tune to Return to Oz. Than, well, I, I feel like Clive Barker's written work is kind of yeah. bomb ass. Yes, actually. I mean, if you think about like, The Thief of Always and things like yeah. that, like he has done his own like dark children stuff as well, which is certainly not for children. But I mean, yeah. Wow. It might have been in 1890 possibly there's there's pictures in that book too oh my gosh you're blowing my mind right now like clive barker certainly is very bomb-esque 
Yeah. So the books ultimately teach that while there is a lot of good in the world, there's just as much, if not more, evil in the world, and there's nothing that we can do about it. And the best way to deal with that dichotomy is as nonviolent as possible, and that kindness is always a virtue worth pursuing. But he wants to strike morality from his books. Get it. The point being to make you know some of the worst things that children and humanity could experience, especially back in the 1890s and early 1900s, more accessible and understandable to help them emotionally manage the very real horrors and traumas that they could. You know, siblings dying, babies dying, and you know, and uh, adults that, lying, yeah. and you know, everything that happened in the Oregon Trail, war and death and plagues and <laughs> frontier horror, yeah, all that stuff. Um, and the, and then that's good, you know. And I just I would like to hope that if that if that was his point of doing this, I would hope. I want to hope that the people who read this book the most were the people who were in the frontier. I just find that hard to believe. I feel like most people who read these books were in larger popular cities. Well, they had like a far neighbor uh, girl who died and his wife was absolutely distraught because they were, you know, very friendly. Yeah. And uh, it was a wonderful little girl and she died, you know, just of, you know, exposure or something, you know, and her name was Dorothy. And that's how he helped his wife feel better about it, was writing a bunch of stories about her with that name. (laughs) That's just one example. (laughs) He's doing his part. But I mean, and and I, I, this is what I was getting at earlier too, is that like fiction, especially written fiction, I feel makes things that are happening in our world easy to digest. And it's, it's why, it's why that I like to latch on to certain things. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. even like navigating my teenage years as a queer person, like I wanted to get my hands on things that were queer coded and the, the easiest stuff that I could get was genre stuff. I mean, he's, he's right. He's right to do so. It does help people. So. And well, what we say very near to the beginning of this podcast was like, horror is the ultimate expression of empathy. Yeah. Right. For sure. That's what those stories are. And so I don't know, but I digress. Um, you know, based on the lack of imagery and the tone that we've been talking about translated from those books, the Wizard of Oz movie that we're getting back to you might actually have been destructive to future adaptations of all fantasy children's books moving forward. Evidenced by essentially everything that came out before this versus after this until the 80s, of course. That's true. With things like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and Return to Oz and mm-hmm. all of the basically half or more of the things that ended up being, uh, you know, in our gateway horror top 10. Well, and I feel like some of that has to do with the lack of a, a, a studio system by the 80s, for sure. It went it went a little ham in the early 80s. So, I mean, we've got cruising going on. We've got Dark Crystal, you know. Um, I mean, like, people, stuff. people started to buck the code, you know? And yeah. they were like, you know, we're not going to be, like, held down by this anymore. And I feel like, you know, Hayes Code started to get its fucking heyday right around the time that The Wizard of Oz was being made into a movie, right? You had yeah. a very, very stringent system that you had to get your films passed, yeah, when those gloves came off, I just feel like everyone started having an identity crisis. All of a sudden, we had things like the Black Cauldron from Disney, yeah, right, which was darker than anything they had done mm-hmm. in decades. And then all of a sudden, we've got Jim Henson, who on one side has Sesame Street, and on the other has the Storyteller, Oof. which was night and fucking day. Yeah, you know, and hardcore, like back in the day, Hans Christian Andersen type stories, you know, and depicting them that way. You know, and then transitions into doing some of those darker movies, right? 
And so it's like we've got that identity crisis going on, and then we've started getting that Reagan revolution. We're back to square one in the 90s again. That's right. With, you know, Ernest Scared Stupid or whatever the fuck we got. all back. (laughs) Ernest Scared Stupid. I saw it in theater. I love that movie. Me too. I was the only Ernest movie I ever watched, but... Me too. Yeah. Anyway, should we actually talk about the gateway horror in this movie? Uh, Yeah, I think we have to. I mean, because we've already alluded to that this is one of the first things that sort of, like, frightened us as children... Right. And while this movie, I feel, is very, very geared toward children or families, like it's a really good place to show your children something a little bit more dark or scary without having the entire thing be that. Like some of the gateway horror is just like sort of subtly done or it's like peppered throughout. Agreed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we might as well start talking about the movie. We're only an hour into the recording. Oh, that's it? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I had to talk about the background. No, that's fine. The thing is, because you're right. Like, everyone knows everything about this movie. There is no way in the world that we're going to do an episode on The Wizard of Oz and think that we're breaking any kind of new ground. But they're all talking about Victor Fleming and Judy Garland and everything else. And while all that stuff is really interesting and important, especially to us Flamers, um, you know, what's what's interesting is to me that like no one's talking about even in like the cursed films documentary and stuff. No one's talking about Baum. No, no one's not. talking about the legacy of Oz itself and the stories and where they came from and how important this movie is and what a huge change in children's horror it had pre nineteen thirty nine to post nineteen thirty nine. And so we've covered that, and I don't think anyone else really has much. Well, I mean, and we should. The thing is, is that like I think what we said when we were doing that top ten last year is that all the gateway horror movies that we had talked about, like two through ten for the rest of that list, would not exist without The Wizard of Oz. Period. Yeah, like right. this is gateway horror, like the pinnacle of gateway horror. And it really set a benchmark. Yes. Right. And so it's like if they had made other decisions, if they had shown other set pieces or gone a little darker, you know, what could have those movies been like after that anyway? Mm-hmm. Could have been interesting. I don't know. But despite Bomb stories being cited as one of the first popularized sanitizing children's stories, there was enough horror not lost in translation that made its way into the movie to land Wizard of Oz on our number one spot of our top 10 gateway horror movies list. And I stand by its placement on that list. I mean, the first 30 seconds of this movie sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Right away, here's what you can expect in tone. And then it goes lighter in the score, right? And then it kind of eases you into it. Because I feel like every moment is like um, very measured to manipulate you emotionally to be exactly where you want it to be, like like you're being conducted like a fucking symphony. For sure. I and mean, that's what like, makes this movie work. And that's why we watch entertainment, you know, constructed media. I think that's why, make, that's why most movies work, right? Like, <laughs> they intentionally make you feel something. Like, they know how to do it. There's a reason why I cry in just about any fucking movie, because I'm easy to cry. But also, like, they're guiding me to do that. Well, I mean, there was someone paying attention to story structure here and beats yeah. and things like that. Whereas today, there might be an ad- adaptation of a very smart and witty script or something else that doesn't really take into account pacing or things like that. But I'm telling you all the technical parts of the story were very well scrutinized from music to the beats, to the editing, everything. Oh, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I feel like that's the case for a lot of the most successful movies of this time period too. Yeah. 
I mean, like we were sitting there talking about like behind the scenes horror in this. I feel like there's behind the scenes horror in just about every movie that was made from like 1935 well into the 50s. And I don't want to get into like conspiracy stuff, but I feel like there's some audio glitches in this. Not glitches, but I wonder if they left a man just to start easing you into that sort of thing. Like uh, after that, right, the first thing about horror might be she lands in the hogs, mm-hmm. right? So there's mortal danger there a little bit. He gets her out. And then later she's talking with Annie M and and, uh, and you hear this like chicken just screech in the background. It <laughs> yeah. always jump, makes me jump. Even as a kid, it made me yep. jump. I remember and I'm like, they could have easily re-recorded that. Easily nope. ADR'd that. They did not. God, right? that struck me last night too when I heard that chicken screech because I remembered watching this movie. It sounds like someone going, damn! Yeah, you know? and I, you could, I remembered hearing that all the time when I was little, and I was just like, oh my gosh, it's still there. Of course it would still be there. The movie has not changed since I was younger, yeah. but it's so weird how things like flood back to you that you have not seen in a very long time. Just down to that chicken screech. Exactly. Yeah. And then it's just like, I feel like there's like a staccato mood here. We're going up, we're meeting our people. It's extremely economical, the amount of storytelling we're getting. Oh, yeah. And this Kansas scenes, right? Uh, we get the scary adults taking away our dogs, a feeling of helplessness. We get stranger danger with the fortune teller. You know, we we're meeting everybody. We're getting kind of the gist of each character very, very quickly. We get how stern Annie M is, but at the same time, she's handing out fucking cookies. You know what I mean? Or whatever the fuck. Mm-hmm. We're getting like these men are are harsh, but they also have heart, you know, and things like that. And so it's like all in just like really, really, really quick and economical. And then we get our fucking twister. It's the, the, the twister is frightening and still looks so good yeah i would agree with you there's no cgi back then obviously and there was no splicing everything had to be kind of done in camera so everything you're seeing with her running around the set and everything else pretty much was all in camera with the tornado behind her fucking and that and like doors flying off hinges and flying around everything's flying around the set technically this is an amazing scene with all the wind going on and and everything that had to be done physically right but my god God, we just did not care about people on movie sets. Like, for real. <laughs> yeah, well, they could just get Shirley Temple in there, you know what I mean? <laughs> My God, Shirley Temple would have been, like, smashed with that fucking door when it flew off. So, it, already we've been in kind of mortal danger a little bit with the hogs and, like, the taking away of the dog and then the stranger danger and then the twister with the actual danger. So, we're getting, it's like we're the, the children are getting pumped, you know, be okay with a certain amount of tension. Exactly. Already, very, very quickly. And we see our witch. We do. Through the window. But it's tempered with all the other characters that show up, you know? Yeah, there's a, some, there's a lot of lightheartedness before that. The right? witch has like a 10 foot long cape and everything else and screeching and You like know, it could have looked a lot and, sillier and that witch did not look silly. No, I mean, it's supposed to be scary. I think that witch is supposed to be frightening because yeah. I feel like, I mean, like the very basis of this story is like Dorothy's eventually having a dream, right? of of the things that she's experienced like all of our dreams are is just part of our memory and so like anything that she thought or felt about people is going to show up in her dream and she thought this woman was wicked like she's called wicked before she even gets to us she was just thumbing for a hitch yeah <laughs> thumbing for a hitch and ooh, what happened then was rich <laughs> what a bitch <laughs> uh and then uh immediately we're we're you know we have the land of oz we have that whole sequence you know where she's like going into the color and uh we get into the dark forest right and this is where you know we, she's already met the scarecrow but uh we have those fucking trees well even before the trees i feel like something that scared me a lot when i was a kid and i 
can't assume I'm alone in this. So when the witch is heading to get the ruby slippers and those feet curl up and go under oh, the yeah. house. Oh my God. Yeah. That right. scared the fuck out of me when I was little. I was just like, like, what the fuck? I was like, so like, like that musical cue. And the little feet Robert's first experience with body horror. <laughs> exactly. I was just like all those striped shoes. I mean, now you can look at that and be like, well, that's where Burton got all his stripes or whatever the fuck, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. But like that terrified the shit out of me when I was little. Yeah. Uh, that, that terrified me. I think even the scarecrow kind of terrified me at first. For sure. Before he starts being jovial and dancing around it. Right. When he's on the pole. And certainly yeah. those goddamn trees. The trees are fucking grumpy. I was like, scary. is this where like the angry molesting trees from Evil Dead came from? Like <laughs> Everything comes from Wizard of Oz. I think we can safely say at this point. Probably. Yeah. But yeah, and those trees are like hurling apples at them and then just like being super fucking muppety grumpy and shit like that. The witch is like lighting people on fire from rooftops. That's right. I mean, like everything that happens in the forest when she first meets all these people is scary i even feel like the lion scene where the lion first comes down to them is kind of scary like the characters are scared for sure yeah but the lion's coming down and he's growling and as a child you're taking your cues from how the, the characters are reacting exactly and then like the lion turns out to be a coward mm-hmm. you know but when he first jumps up on screen and is walking on all fours for just a minute he doesn't ever do it for the rest of the movie Right. But when we first see him, he's acting like an actual animal and it's kind of scary. Yeah. And after that, I feel like the next horror moment is that drug by Poppy is like loss of control. Exactly. You know, there's like literally nothing you can do. And then they meet the wizard. Right. And there's failed expectations. Right. Again, failed expectations here is a big thing with adults in this story. I feel like, you know, uh, adults aren't perfect. No. And I feel like like Dorothy's character in in this movie and for sure, probably in the book is starting to realize that pretty quickly. And then he's kind of inexplicably like, uh, I'm not going to do anything for you. He's I'm going to insult all of you. And then I'm going to tell you the only way I'm going to actually help you or do anything for you, which he doesn't really do, is to go kill the Wicked Witch. And they're somehow fine with that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all this, this entire movie is all about like power grabs, like constantly throughout it to me. Like <laughs> Glenda's ultimate power gla- grab. Yeah. Of getting I mean, yeah. Off the board. By the end of the movie, she's like, Oh, everyone else with power is dead. Now it's just me or, or the wizard to, is gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? And she's like, she just uses this girl to like get everything. Well, this ruins my plan to send you on a journey and teach you a lesson and eventually have you kill the wicked witch yourself. What did you say? Oh, nothing! (laughs) This is all just a dream! I'm a good witch. I would... I would never... There's no place like home! Peach! (sighs) Uh, uh, What the... The thing is, is that all these people that have some sort of power are trying to take power from other people, the wizard included. Once the wicked, well, I'm not going to lift dead. a finger or endanger myself. I'm exactly. These people, like, you know, the wizard helps those who help themselves. You know, it's like, well, but he couldn't. I mean, if he's re- regarded in such a way, he couldn't just go kill somebody. You know, but here we are talking about the politics of Oz, really. Yeah. When the wizard itself, when um, they first meet him, is this really ghostly looking giant green head. You know, disappointing <laughs> well, with fire and shit coming out of yeah. it. I mean, for a kid, that's kind of scary. Well, it's they go along with it. Yeah. that He was definitely scary. Yes. Right. Um, and then they go to even darker forests somehow where there's poltergeists and even scarier trees and flying monkeys. They're only there for a hot second, but it was scary when I was a kid. Sure. The flying monkeys are 
just cannot with those like even watching this last night like anytime they had like even a remote close-up and they don't really do that very much in the movie but i was just like they look frightening to me and just the concept of it and so like one of the scariest parts in the movie involving the flying monkeys for me are when they're looking up at the sky and the, the flying monkeys are like shown in like silhouette like the whole army of them just coming at them and i was just like my god that is truly fucking frightening. And I mean, they, they take our main character away and her little dog too, but they also like rip apart one of our characters. They do. They rip the scarecrow apart. And he's like, my body's over here. My body's over there. And I was like, what the fuck are these things? Like, yeah. man, when I was a kid, I was like, this is Those first disembowelment, you know, and all that stuff. Oh my God. Baby's first disembowelment. Yeah. You're right. Cause right after this, I started watching Dawn of the dead on the regular. <laughs> so I just like learned all my shit from the wizard of Oz, but there are things that I've taken away from this. Like obviously we've already talked about maybe my fear of clowns coming from seeing that witch in real life. But also when I go to the zoo, I typically avoid the monkey areas. Cause I find monkeys to be completely frightening. Wow. They can problem solve. And I don't care for that. Like the, <laughs> <laughs> they have opposable thumbs. <laughs> they can literally hurt me worse than almost anything else in that zoo. Anything that can fire a gun. I feel like they would enjoy hurting me too on some weird humanistic level, and I just don't like it. They would throw poop at you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then we get the witch's castle, uh, and we get that weird, like, OEM, EOM, whatever the fuck it is. O-E-O. With, like, the Easty meets Westy costumes that they've got going on that's, like, probably Yo. giving generations of kids, like, anger issues towards, you know, Russians. <laughs> probably. <laughs> and people in Asia. <laughs> I mean, I certainly saw this movie the first time in the 80s. I mean, like, not that I was watching the nightly news, but I'm pretty sure there was a dose of Russia but it's very, in every like, newscast. Czarish, you know, yes. like old school, like Great War, pre-Great War, you mm-hmm. know, Russian costume type of situation going on here. Yeah. Which, you know, those people were alive for kind of, you know, so. It's true. Yeah. I mean, Anastasia was right around this time, right? Yeah. Uh, well, Nosferatu, no, what is his name? Rasputin, sorry. <laughs> Nosferatu. It was based yeah. on Nosferatu. Um, and then we get more, more uh, again, just like death and, and threat of death in all these different ways. And then it's basically she's just threatened with time. Yeah. She just turns over the time turner, the sand, whatever the fuck it's called. Hourglass. The hour, yeah. Thank you. Hourglass. <laughs> words. Hourglass. And uh, that scared the shit out of me. Just well, to something that arbitrarily I would just die at the end of something like that. That scared the shit out of me. And. Same, I guess. I mean, like the, I don't think I really grasped it until later on in my childhood. It blew but, my little kitty mind. But I was just like, just time, the thought of time in general. Yes. And really, can't we just like boil time down to thing that most people are scared about? I mean, like the older that I get, I don't really need the Wizard of Oz to be afraid of time. It just happens naturally. It doesn't make sense either. Like in the story, it's like, what was going to happen? Why couldn't she just turn it over was it, again? She was going to die in the room or the witch was going to come back. She had an ear and she had to come run. back. She had like a, like a fucking fax she had to go get. Like what the <laughs> she fuck? was like, I have to take an hour long deuce. So when this well, is done, literally 30 seconds after she leaves, she shows up in the fucking glass ball or yeah, whatever. She's still leave her alone. Oh, my little dog. I'm watching this last <laughs> night and I was like, she's sitting there looking at the hourglass and kind of like terrified as the sand is like falling down. And I was like, just turn it back over the other way. I mean, like they started throwing it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> just going to break it. Like everything else in that witch's castle or the wizard. I, I think the witch actually throws it right. Yeah, she she picks it up and throws it down at them. Yeah. Cause she's always like, perturbed. Yeah. Hey, nobody got time for that. She she is tired of being foiled by this little girl and her friends. (laughs) Right? I would be too. 
For real uh, though, the witch is like the like most sympathetic character here. <laughs> really? I mean, she's literally her sister's corpse, which is like laying there, and this little girl stole the fucking shoes off of her. Right. All she wants to do is have a proper goddamn burial mm-hmm. for her sister. No. And she's being denied at every fucking turn. She's told to leave. Where's the common decency? She's like, be gone. You have no power here. And like, stop underestimating me, Glenda. I just want to have a goddamn funeral. <laughs> when us. <laughs> if all these munchkins and none of y'all can dig. God. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, and then we got the I'm melting and body horror part two. <laughs> Which I feel like when I saw this as a kid, the melting scene in this movie lasted forever in my memory. And then last night I was just like, well, that was fast. So I just remember my jaw like unhinging, like and like dropping to the floor slow motion as she like melted over 30 minutes, you know, (laughs) or something. Yeah. It took in my memory. It took forever that she was just like screaming and agonizing in pain. It's like five or 10 seconds. And then it's nothing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and really what happens from that point on is that I get mad as an adult how easy things happen to be in Oz from that point out. Yeah, it's like, almost like the, the, like the wrap up, you know, like fragility of, of life or something. Like, I don't know. Maybe. But I would have been more pissed that like the, the only thing you had to do to kill the witch was throw water on her. Like they make her seem like this all powerful thing. Yeah. And then it's like the simplest of like substances. Yeah. So in the book, it mentions many times that she and kind of foreshadows how dry she is. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's not like she's made of sugar or whatever. That well, and having read Wicked, you. you know, I mean, but like, yeah. What was what was the case in Wicked? Was it was she dry or what? Same. I think she had some abnormal fear of water. I can't. I read Wicked. Hydrophobic. <laughs> yeah, I read Wicked the year that I read like a hundred books or whatever the fuck. For my oh, New Year's resolution, so I and I did twelve or whatever. It was. I liked the book about as much as I like the musical, and that is to say, not at all. Ooh, that's gonna anger some people. Yeah, I'm still gay though, y'all. I will see the movie. Last time I insulted that in public, I got like berated by a gay man. By a gay man? By a gay man? Really? Yeah. I'm gonna see the movie because I like Ariana Grande. That's gay enough. Okay. I I also did not care very much for. Wicked. Wicked. Yeah. At least this is why we're friends. (laughs) Because we. I saw it it live too. Like, and I. Yeah, same. So, I mean, like, you and I can walk into the middle of a gay bar and just. Some good costumes and stuff just didn't click with me because I don't know. Maybe I'm tied too much into my nostalgia boner for Bomb's work. And then it just seems all too cynical of of that story and seems like a Johnny Come Lately and like cash grab on top of that story. It's like, write your own. I don't know. Like, there's like, oh, that's clever. And then once that dissipates from me, which is very, very quickly after I, I hear about the whole wicked thing, mm-hmm. Nefelba, like I get over it real fast. Same. And so that's it's never stuck with me. But I'm not I'm not trying to dig it for people that really love it. Oh, no, no. I mean, like to each their own, like fully. Like you said, I like some of the songs, you know, and seeing any musical on stage is a magical experience. Yeah. You know, or just like yeah, it's not my favorite. Anywho, we digress and, we and offended all the other gay people. <laughs> we go back to Oz and um, we have the failed expectations again. The wizard's like, come back tomorrow while I think about your fate. Yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck you. Right. And then they see the man behind the curtain and they kind of just forget that he just insulted all of them and was going to forget them. And then he already has like a black bag ready to go or whatever. So it's like some it's trinkets. Kind of weird and lazy. Um, it's all kind of written emotionally rather than logically. Which is like you can't really say that from much other films if you really think about it. 
I mean, like at the end of the day, like, and the thing is, I don't think that they really explain the message enough in this, but, but he's driving home the fact that they have all the traits and all the things that they already wanted. Mm-hmm. Right. He was, I mean, he sort of says that a little bit, but they seem to be a little bit more happy to have the tangible thing in their hand, which says something else about America. Yeah. But he's like, Oh, you know, you've, you've already been a thinker, but here's your degree, I guess. Yeah, because yeah, they're like, all they're all expressing themselves the entire movie yeah. with everything except for Dorothy, which I still don't really get. If yeah. I, if I wasn't happy in my own backyard, I was a little, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, if if the lesson was home is where the heart is, or like um, if it is where you wherever you go, there you are. Home is what you make of it, you know, type of situation. But it's not. So no, I don't. I don't really. This is the part of the movie where I start to get really mad at the way that things are wrapping up. And I was like, all these people are just getting trinkets. And I'm like... And then the fucking balloon goes away. And it's just yes. like let, uh, yet another letdown. There's so many letdowns in this movie. You just feel so emotionally manipulated. And then Glinda comes. And so like, there's constantly everything that could happen. There's a takeaway. So there can be yet another dopamine hit from the thing that solves the problem constantly. That's so there's all these manufactured problems that are happening within the problems. You know? So it's just like dopamine hit after dopamine hit after dopamine hit. Like Glinda shows up. and By the know. time that she comes back, it's the fucking worst. Like I want to slap that bitch by the end of this movie. <laughs> And I feel like I was probably that exacerbated that as a never child occurred too. To you as a kid, no, I swear to God, come on! Like you could have always done it. Maybe not as like the first time I watched it, but the time I was like ten, yeah, I was a little exasperated. It was just like, but if the rule was like she couldn't say it, you had to figure it out for yourself. It's like, but but she didn't really. She didn't really figure it out for herself. No, so. she was still told by yeah. the end of it. Like, oh, I thought about that as a kid, but I didn't have. I wasn't like actively angry at Glinda. You know what I mean? I mean, I I feel like I was. I was certainly <laughs> mad watching this last night. I was just like, teach uh, me a lesson. I would have fucked that bitch. Up, I would. She's like, well, you've always had the power to go home. I would have been like, fuck you. Tell me right now, and then I'm gonna hold on to you while I go back to America, and then <laughs> push you in some hogs. Right. Forget now. Right. Will you help me? Can you help me? You don't need to be helped any longer. You've always had the power to go back to Kansas. Excuse me. Why didn't you tell her before? Because she wouldn't have believed. Are you out of your mind? You came down with a big bubble. I would have believed anything that you said. If you told me that the only way to get home is to lick the lollipop guild, I would have done it. But then you never would have met us. I could have done without the three of you. Teenage girl skipping down the road with three dudes. I had to sleep with my hands between my legs. Thought I had the dog. You didn't have to be afraid of me, Dorothy. Believe me, I picked up on that right away, tinsel toes. So, how do I get home, you witch? Just click your heels. Click my heels? Listen, baby talk, I'm about a hair away from punching you in the face. Please don't do Zip it, homo. So I click my heels, then what? It better be more complicated than that or I'm gonna go ballistic. Oh, it's much more complicated than that. You have to click your heels and say... There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And you would have been home in two seconds. I could have been home two seconds after I got here? Oh, there are many other ways you could have gotten home. You could have clapped your hands. You could have 
winked or brushed your eyelash. You could have sneezed or turned your head quickly. Any of those ways and you would have been home. Oh, you psycho glitter bitch! I almost went up in a balloon with that crazy old man. You're enjoying this, aren't you, you sick oh. You're so much worse than the other witches. Well, at least I knew where I stood with them. You're two-faced. I was just trying to help you. I was trying to teach you a lesson. Teach me a lesson? You're not my parents. My parents are dead. I live with my Annie M and three creepy uncles who are pawing at me every day and telling me how pretty I look in my checkered dress. Teach me a lesson. How dare you? So she gets, she does get back to Kansas, and I'm wondering, like. I was when I caught myself wondering, and I never thought this as a kid. I was like, does this mean to allude that Miss Gulch, the you know the witch in real life, that she died in the tornado because she was biking, or does this mean like she's coming right back for Toto and like we're back to square one? <laughs> I I mean like I'm fairly certain she probably didn't die in that tornado. At this point, she's probably thinking it's not worth having a dog, so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she's like, Toto, you really got me into some shit and awe, so no, I'm not going to do that. But also, I mean, like, I feel like her priorities may have changed as a character. So yes. she she cares more about her aunt and uncle, and she's like, hey, I may have to have this sacrifice. It's a terrible sacrifice for a child to make. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, they were going to have their farm taken away, maybe. All because that dog bit someone. Yeah. So... But yeah. I, she's probably coming right back to get that dog. That's probably because she's a she's a bitch. But now she's gonna throw water on her. Cause I love the fucking similarities to this movie and Gremlins, which you've already had a deep dive into. Mm-hmm. But it, like Mrs. Gulch just reminds me of Mrs. Deagle and the fucking Gremlins, which I also liked when I was around the same age. Right? Yeah. Like they're portrayed in the exact same way. So love it. It's safe to say, though, this movie is completely uh, gateway horror. Like, everything in it is, like, a good start for kids who like scary things or maybe just showed kids they can handle some scary things and move their way on. It certainly was for me. So, yeah. Uh, Do you have any fun facts for me? I do. I have a lot, actually. Oh, okay. Because we have to get some of these out of the way for the people that don't know. All right. All right. Some of them you might not know. I don't know. Let's find out. So most people attribute the look of Kansas to the Dust Bowl, which, of course, was a phenomenon that was in recent history to the film happening between 1930 and 1936. But Baum's original description of Kansas actually comes from his experience much earlier in the 1800s of the droughts in South Dakota. Okay. And so everything was kind of sun bleached and grayed out. And that was his depiction. And so they just made it more modernized it back in the 30s to the Dust Bowl, which seems weird to say. Yeah, I feel like if I had watched this movie more when I was in high school and having gone through like AP American history, which is a really hard class and lots of things to remember, I probably would have said more Dust Bowl stuff. It's just hard to remember. It's like they're trying to modernize it for something that is still like 80 years ago for us or something, you mm-hmm. know, versus 40 years earlier for them was more like the droughts, you know, and things like that. So it's just kind of crazy. Think about it that way. It's a fun fact, though. The original concept for the Wicked Witch of the West was to have her resemble a strikingly beautiful woman, much in the same way the evil queen in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was conceived, although this was not in the case in the book. So it was changed pretty early on to be the ugly hag witch. 
So um, in the Cursed Films episode, which is something that's on Shudder, right? Mm -hmm. They have one of this movie and they talk about that and they show some of those concept photos of what they want. Because they had a cast person. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was going to be it. But ultimately, Margaret Hamilton was cast. Uh, She was a lifelong fan of the Oz books. And so she was ecstatic when she learned that the producers were considering her for a part in the film. When she phoned her agent to find out what role she was up for, her agent simply replied, the witch, who else? Oh, my God. <laughs> that poor woman, too. To which she replied, you're fired. <laughs> she, no, she was probably, she's like a very nice lady. But from what I gather, like, it was hard for her to shake that witch. It was. She would later go on, like, Mr. Rogers and yeah. try and, like, explain it to kids and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And, and she was on Sesame Street, Sesame Street which actually um, only came back from someone had uploaded it from some re- dark recesses of whatever network channel it was because it had been banned because it was scaring kids. And so there's a whole thing with her and like Oscar the Grouch and everything. She came back in makeup and Oh my god. Yeah, so that I need to go watch that because that wasn't available until like literally a couple weeks ago. I mean for sure cuz that witch is fucking frightening. I mean like down to it for children it's scary. Yeah, but later she was known Margaret Hamilton was known for those coffee commercials. Yeah. She was like a, a nice older lady, like a golden girl or whatever and exactly. she was in all those coffee commercials. Was it Folgers or I think it was Folgers. Something something like that. Yeah, but Maxwell like, House. Maxwell House maybe like 70s 80s commercials. Mm-hmm. I mean she was, you know, a lady of a certain age and she was a very nice woman. So mm-hmm. I mean she was a school teacher before she was an actress or yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, I think the the anecdotes are that her and and Judy Garland were very very friendly oh, on I'm the sure. sets and that you know she would go and show her a dress, you know, and and Margaret Hamilton would be like, "Oh, you're going to wear that to your graduation." And you know, then Judy Garland would go be called away by the studio and she she ended up not being able to wear the dress to her graduation. So Margaret Hamilton called the studio execs and, and yelled at them for making her miss her graduation. And so Good. there's lots of all these little anecdotes of them being very, very friendly. And we were too busy feeding her methamphetamines. Hmm. <laughs> so the tornado was a 35 foot long muslin stocking spun around among miniatures of a Kansas farm and fields in a dusty atmosphere. I did not know this. Pantyhose. It's pantyhose. Yeah. That. But it was on like a gimbal, so it would turn and twist. And they had dust being flown out by uh, compressors, air compressors at the top and the bottom. And it looks fucking photorealistic. Like to this day, it looks so good. This is why I love movies. You know what I mean? Because like in the early days of movies and even like like in 80s horror, when people were trying to like one up something that just happened, they would just try some shit to see if it worked. And they're like, yeah, it looks good. You know, but like I had no fucking idea. That's a stocking. I never understood that because, you know, I'm watching movies that came out in the 80s that are supposed to have tornadoes like fucking Poltergeist, Spielberg's Poltergeist. Mm. And that tornado looks like balls compared to this one. Yeah. And this is 1939 and it looks still today in 2023 near near or at photorealism. In camera effects, people. I want to go watch Twister to see if I can like compare. Yeah, it's all it's all in camera because it's really photographed, but they made it look really good. There's... Well, I think you're going to have your chance this year, so yeah. next year. Oh. Oh. oh, So Dorothy leaving the sepia house and into the colorful Oz was a completely in-camera effect. The set and a full-body double of Dorothy was dressed in sepia tones, and when the body double opens the door and then backs away to make room for the camera, the real Dorothy played by, of course, Judy Garland in full-color costume, walks out into Oz. So it was all in-camera effect. I didn't know that either. Yeah. I like that. The Munchkins are portrayed by the Singer Midgets. 
What? <laughs> named uh, not for their musical abilities, but for Leo Singer, their manager. That was their name. I'm not calling them midgets. It was... The- He was the manager for all those little people? Yeah. So the troupe actually came from Europe. Many of them were Jewish, and a number of them took advantage of the trip to stay in the U.S. in order to escape the Nazis. Good. So professional singers dubbed most of their voices, as many of the midgets couldn't even speak English or sing well at all. And only two are heard speaking with their real-life voices, um, the ones who give Dorothy flowers after she climbs into the carriage. We thank you very sweetly. Whatever, those? Mm, I guess. Maybe. Maybe. Or is it the Lollipop Guild? I don't fucking know. They represent the Lollipop Guild. In the first take of the scene, when the Wicked Witch of the West leaves Munchkinland, the smoke that was supposed to go up around her came early and started forming before she stepped on the platform she was supposed to be on. On the second take, part of Margaret Hamilton's cape became caught in the platform when the burst of fire appeared. Her makeup heated up, causing second and third degree burns on her hands and her face. And it was later discovered that one of the key components in her makeup was actually copper. The producers used the first take. You'll notice the early appearance of the red smoke. She missed six weeks of filming, recovering before she could even wear makeup again because they had to use an acetone to get that off. And with third degree burns, that would hurt. So they had to painstakingly take it off from then on out with alcohol wipes. Yep. They scrubbed her fucking skin with alcohol, which was burned. And if you can imagine like the pain of just the scrubbing alone yeah. on a fresh burn would hurt. So um, in the episode of Cursed Films, they talk about her face and hands and things like that being bandaged. There was a chemical reaction. Yeah. yeah. And so um, her son is giving an interview on that episode of that show. And he remembers his mom having the nanny bring him in. And she's explaining to him that she's in a costume like a mummy. They're trying on a mummy costume so that he wouldn't be scared. So, I mean, Aww. she clearly did not want children to be scared of her at all. No, she never did. Yeah. So Ray Bolger, or sorry, Bolger, Bolger was originally cast as the Tin Man even though he looks literally looks like a scarecrow to me. However, he insisted he looks kind of like Ichabod Crane. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can see that. However, he insisted that he would rather play the scarecrow. His childhood idol, Fred Stone had originated that role on stage in 1902. Buddy Ebsen had been cast as a scarecrow and now switched roles with Bulger. Unbeknownst to him, however, the makeup for the Tin Man contained aluminum dust, which was, you know, ended up coating Ebsen's lungs. He also had an allergic reaction to it, and one day he was physically unable to breathe and had to be rushed to the hospital and was there for many, many weeks, as far as I know. The part was immediately recast, and MGM gave no public reason why Epson was being replaced. The actor considered this the biggest humiliation he ever endured and a personal affront. Yeah, shame on them for that. When Jack Haley took over the part of Tin Man, he wasn't told why Epson was dropped out. And in the meantime, the Tin Man makeup was changed from aluminum dust to aluminum paste as one of its key components. And he had to wear a white clown pancake makeup underneath it to protect his skin. And even still, he got horrible eye infections. And that's fucking ridiculous for this like studio to do that. Yeah. And as far as back then, man, Yeah, as far as I know, I mean, every actor was just like any other person who worked at the factory. That is like a studio. Um, Buddy Epson was prone to like, bronchitis and things like that after this like it yeah. fucked him up i think it ultimately may have killed him yeah i mean like breathing in all that aluminum mentally dust. emotionally physically fucked him up yeah so that's really sad bert lars costume weighed 90 pounds it was made from real lion skin oh and very hot 
The arc lights used to light the set often raised the temperature in the set to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Lar would sweat so profusely that the costume would be soaked by the end of the day. There were two people whose only job was it to spend the night drying it for the next day. It was dry cleaned occasionally, but usually, in the words of one of the crew members, it reeked. I'm sure it did. Did you see that there was like an anecdote of a couple of uh, years ago where someone actually had like it had auctioned off over the years again and again and someone had it in their like garage sale what and it looks ratty as fuck oh that raggedy costume that's sad yeah and then i think someone cleaned it up in there it's now like in a museum somewhere maybe well i mean the ruby slippers are in the smithsonian right yes and it had and it has to be redone every once in a while as well anyway in the famous poppy field scene in which dorothy and the cowardly lion fell asleep the snow used in those camera shots, was made from 100% industrial-grade asbestos. Yep. Despite the fact that the health hazards of asbestos had been known for several years at that point. <laughs> they didn't care. It looked really white. It did. It looked super <laughs> realistic. They're like, asbestos will make them sleep forever. <laughs> God. Don't lick it. <laughs> Don't eat this. Speaking of licking, the horses in the Emerald City were colored with gelatin powder. <gasps> Oh, no. The relevant scenes had to be shot quickly before they started to lick it off. <gasps> that's cannibalism. It is kind of, yeah. What do you think about it? Oh, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. Wait, everything we're talking about, I'm like, no, those horses. <laughs> we're going to powder those horses the, with the dusty skin of their ancestors. Yeah, We're going to powder you with the hooves of your fallen brethren. <laughs> this one's name was Grape. <laughs> <laughs> he was a grapist. It's almost of a different color. Okay. So the iconic ruby slippers are now at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History and so popular that the carpet in front of them has had to be replaced numerous times due to wear and tear of all the foot traffic. I've seen them. I have a picture somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. So finally, a recent study claimed that this was the most watched movie in film history, largely due to the number of television screenings each year as well as the various video, DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K releases, which have enabled children of every and all generations to see it. I would completely believe that. I feel like forever this movie is going to be something that is passed down generation to generation. Mm-hmm. You know? But now it's kind of a mixed bag for me, like uh, as far as like legacy-wise. like What it could have been if it was closer to bound would have been a popular if it was closer to bound. Probably not. Would have had the, quite the legacy if it was darker. I don't know, you know, but it's interesting to see the history of it and what, f- you know, fantasy was before this movie and fantasy was after, you know, and its legacy, which is still felt to this day. What kind of makes me shudder is the fact that like every so often there's talk of doing some kind of a remake. And I know that some have been done, you know, like no one's ever like quite like succeeded at remaking the wizard of Oz. But I think one of the more recent ones was like a Sam Raimi version. That's like a prequel. It was horrible. I, I yeah. really want them to, to step away from MGM's thing. No yep. one, no one's going to top that. Mm-hmm. Go to bombs world yep. and try and do what return to Oz did just, you know, more competently maybe. And um, we'll talk about that next week for sure. When we talk about that, but we do have some questions to talk about. Like we do every movie that we cover here on the film flamers. And we're going to start with, this is a horror movie. Uh, very adjacently, yes. Yeah. Gateway horror at its finest. 
I would agree. Gabby Horror at its finest, it's super, super horror adjacent. There, I think there are moments of just true horror in this. For sure. And since we, you know, spent the greater part of this episode talking about like the original vision of this book, I feel like it could very easily be made into a movie that's actually horror. Mm-hmm. And at some point, like, won't this book enter public domain? And then everybody in the world will be making a movie about it. Should have been already, right? At this point, yeah. Right. If it was 1900, isn't it like a hundred years? So it's 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's up with that? Yeah. I don't know. All right. Uh, were you scared while watching the Wizard of Oz? Yeah, sure. Yeah. When I was a kid, definitely. When I was a kid. Yeah. I certainly yeah. wasn't scared now. No scared for other reasons. Watching this movie as an adult is completely different. Like I was shocked at the things that I took away from this. Like I was sitting there like marveling at its technical achievements. And I was like, Oh my God, the costumes. And Oh my God, like the scarecrows makeup. I was and like, costumes. look at those set extensions and the scene painting. I was like, look at that Italian Cypress. I want some from my backyard. You're so gay. And, uh, <laughs> but I noticed things that I had never noticed before. Like the scarecrows holding a fucking gun. Yeah. When and they're like, walking through the forest. And I was like, is that a gun? Like a half second. And then there yeah. was like, there was an, a cut scene, which of course we could have brought to the table with some of the deleted scenes and deleted yeah you know, i noticed the music in here like not on bald mountain is playing as they're escaping True. the witch you know the witch's castle you know and so like there's lots of things i noticed as an adult with my you know lived experience of 40 years that i had never noticed before and it was know? kind of eye-opening watching so, this as yeah. a 44 year old man i was just like wow highly like, recommend settling in and letting yourself kind of enjoy this and watch it for the first time again and and for those of you with kids like watch it without your kids too so you're not having to like explain things like literally sit there and like watch the movie like it's a completely different experience Although I, I did read that wonderful letterboxed review where the kid like the person is experiencing the movie through their child for the first time again which was a really awesome letterboxed review i was going to add it to the docket for us to read but i think i'm just going to take that screenshot and post it to socials yeah so people can see it but it was a really good like review uh but that sort of like brings us into our next question so out of five stars what would you rate the wizard of oz i gave it a four and a half um because there's part of this movie that kind of bothers me right so i'm going to say something controversial yet brave oh my god you hate wicked we already said it the lion's song is trash and he's the worst character in the entire movie there (sighs) i said it chris if i were king (laughs) I'm going to fly across this table and strangle you. Well, and I should do the same for having you say that. (laughs) That is controversial. Um, That and and a couple of other things, but I feel like um, it's near enough. It really deserves a five star, really. But I I don't know. Something inside me, you know, feels like there's a little bit of popcorn here and there's some like abuse and weird things going on. (laughs) scenes that I know about that I wish I didn't know about yeah. make it a four and a half but it's so important I feel like um, everything in Kansas is so economical uh, and such a beautiful filmmaking from a structure standpoint even before we get to the color but that entire Munchkin land sequence when she opens the door from Dorothy's arrival in Oz to her departure on the Yellow Brick Road has to be one of the greatest sequences in cinema history like a masterpiece of set design costuming choreography music lyrics storytelling camera movement and sheer imagination i feel like there's parts of this movie that are peak cinema and just have not been topped since because they're just so expertly crafted i would completely agree with you i mean like i also gave this movie four and a half stars and i was kind of teetering on giving it five and i was like it deserves five for sure like you just said but like it's not quite there for me right it's four and a half is is good and i don't even think that's being generous i feel like it earns it because it really is oh yeah like this is what movies should be right this is what movies 
what what people wanted it to be back then. I think they it's what we want it to be now. It's an experience. As much more horror as it could have been, I feel like it's it needs to be exactly how it is. Yeah, yeah I feel like it's horror enough. Like it was horror enough to scare me. It was horror enough yeah. to like set me on a lifelong path of looking for things that were dark in some way, you know, because everything that I loved in my childhood and for the rest of my life have come from me watching this movie. Like if I can't handle watching the wizard of Oz as a kid or, or at least liking it so much. And like in those very specific scary parts, I mean, who knows if I would have made it on to like never ending story that we talked about last year. Right. Which really like set me on a horror path. Like I have everything that I love today, I kind of have to owe for my love of this movie back when I was a kid, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, there's like a, a big nostalgia boner, like penetrating that four and a half star rating. But like, I feel like this, when you think about movie, if you look up movie in the dictionary, mm-hmm. it's the wizard of Oz. Sure. Like fully finally. And I don't know how we're going to answer this question. Who's the hottest guy in the wizard of Oz? Did you even stop to think about it? Because I no. didn't until right now. <laughs> uh, maybe one of the three guys out of makeup. Yeah, I would say that out of the three guys out of makeup, probably the like the Tin Woods Me too. man. The Me, tin, I was going to say man. That. Yeah. What's his name? Stranger Danger. <laughs> uh, that is uh, Jack Haley. Yeah, I would say him probably. Now, fun fact, I think um, Judy Garland's daughter... Liza Minnelli married the son of Jack Haley at some point. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Look at all those connections. Yeah. All those six degrees of separation or marriage. Not even separate. We'll separate it now. One of her 18 marriages. She was married 18 times. I don't fucking know. Something like that. A lot. Three, four. I don't know. Judy Garland married a lot. But yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. I'd never stopped to think about it. I didn't stop to think about it while watching this movie last night. So I'm unprepared for that question, but it's definitely not Bert Lahr. No. But he did save her from the hogs, which is commendable. He did. And he was, yeah, nothing against him. Yeah. Except for a singing voice. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on The Wizard of Oz. And as always, we want to know what you think about this movie. Like, we're pretty sure that every one of you listening to this has seen The Wizard of Oz at least once in your life. Tell us what you think about the film. Tell us what you think about the discussion. Do you like what we brought to the table talking about Bomb's work and all the horrorness of this movie? You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter. I'm just going to call it Twitter. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and threads. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or you can call our hotline 972-666-7733. The greatest adventure is... Okay, wrong movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wet me. Wet my beautiful wickedness. Melt me. Lick me. Lick me. (laughs) Said the lollipop kill. We have more content coming out for you this month. More gateway horror content like we've been alluding to or downright saying. On this episode next week, we are covering Return to Oz. 
another one of our formative gateway horror experiences. And later on in the month, we are bringing back our poll. So if you voted for a movie in last year's gateway horror poll for Patreon and it didn't win, you have your chance to vote for it again. Head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers, join the family and tell us which movie we should cover this month. I'm really excited to talk about Return to Oz, especially after talking about all the historicity of Baum's work. And it's definitely a top 10 for his bulk film. <laughs> definitely. Couldn't even say that with a straight face. I know. <laughs> right up there with Waterboy. I mean, don't spoil the conversation, Chris. That's going to be a bullet point in next week's docket. <laughs> so, uh, we also like to read reviews on Shooting the Flames. So head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or really anywhere you can leave us a review. Tell us why you like us. Click those stars and we will read that on our next Shooting the Flames episode. I bind you, Glenda. Because <laughs> yourself and I'm against others. The fucking bitch. I mean, like, really? <laughs> I mean, I would be so mad. And also, like, Dorothy was so rude to her other friends at the end because she turns to Scarecrow and she's like, I'll miss you most of all. And I was like, bitch, they're standing right there. I was just like, God. Attacked. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Chris, I think it's time for us to go off, uh, think about our childhood some more, and maybe have some horrible Lewis Carroll dreams. 1933's Alice in Wonderland dreams. Mm. <laughs> For real. Fuck that Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> Fuck him in the egg ass. <laughs> oh, you crack me up. <laughs> <laughs> and this episode, meow. Dick, dick. <laughs>